Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, I was saying to Elizabeth, I was like, what do I say? Like the first thing I get up. Um, And she was like, well, what do you think you should say? You know, your first Sunday Kingsway. I was like, "Uh, I'm here. Um, Great to see you. I I didn't really, wasn't really sure. So uh, there's not really a good end to this story, actually. I'm still not really sure what to say. There isn't anything polished. It's great to be here. Feels like... Feels like we've been talking about coming to CCM, to, to CCM Kingsway for months. So actually, it is actually just nice to be here, to see you guys, to, to, to be along with you. So I'm excited. I'm excited. There's loads of great people here. I'm excited to see what God's going to do um, over these next months and years here at, at Kingsway. So yeah, I think I speak for Elizabeth and myself, and we're just yeah, really glad to be here. And yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I've said that a lot, so I think we're going to have a lot of fun. So I'm excited. So um this morning, um, oftentimes when you kind of start like a new term or kind of new year or a new church, you kind of start with a vision sermon, okay? Now, this morning uh, I decided, well, a few months ago I decided, well, what we're going to do is we're going to carry on with the Mark series, okay? Now, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, carry on with the Mark series, keep going, kind of finish it running up to Easter, perfect time to finish Mark, you know, coming up to Easter, all that kind of stuff. And then, like, a few days ago, I, like, I looked at the sermon, the, the passage that I was going to preach on today, and it's kind of like the opposite of a vision sermon. It's Jesus, like, predicting the destruction of the temple. So it's kind of like Jesus predicting death and destruction. So, you know, that kind of vision. What's going to happen? Death and destruction, okay? So... It's like the complete opposite of a vision sermon, okay? So you're going to have to bear with me uh, on that. It's kind of a, not the normal kind of chapter that you would look at at the start of the year to kind of get everyone geared up, but that's what we're going to do. So I just want to start by sharing, though, something that, um, something that happened to me back in July. So back in July, uh, Elizabeth and Max and I, we went back to Northern Ireland for a week to visit my parents. And on the Sunday afternoon, Elizabeth and I, we went to visit my old uh, Sunday school teacher, a lady called Kathleen. I think I might have mentioned this story before. And she's in her 70s now, lovely, lovely Christian lady, really is. Now, for those of you who don't know me so well, um, I grew up in the countryside. I grew up in a really small village. Now, the thing you've got to know about small villages, if you're from the city, is that in small villages, everybody knows everything about everyone. That's just the way it is. Okay, it's not like in the city. So just before I jumped in the car with Elizabeth to go and visit this lady called Kathleen, my mum basically filled me in on everything that had happened to her in the last two years of her life. Um, so what she said, she said to me that um, in the last two years, Kathleen's husband, this lady, my old Sunday school teacher, her husband had died of cancer. Her daughter had a miscarriage. Her two grandsons, one who's eight and one who's five, both had a leg amputated each because of a rare genetic condition, okay? All these things had happened in the last two years. Pretty much in two years, her life as she knew it had pretty much fallen apart. And as Elizabeth and I drove to her house, I thought, I wonder how she's doing since going through all this. Like, I, I, I remember her growing up. I always remembered her as such a warm, kind lady who just, you know, loved the Lord so much. And as we were driving there, I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, will she still be like this? Or, or will she have become bitter or angry towards God? Or what's happened? That's what I was kind of wondering. 
And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is how to live when your world is falling apart. How to live when your world is falling apart. We're, we're going to continue the, the series in the book of Mark that you've been doing over this last year. Um, as I mentioned at the start, I just, I just, as I said earlier, I just felt it would be great for us to finish it in the run-up to Easter. So that's what we're going to do. Now, the passage in Mark um, we're going to look at this morning is Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 31. Mark 13, 1 to 31. You can turn to it in your Bible. It will appear on the screen behind as we go through it. Now, This is one of the most commented on and debated passages in the whole Bible. It's also one of the most complicated and misunderstood passages in the whole Bible, which is probably why Tim made sure that he'd moved sight before getting to this in this series. I think like he knew what he was doing, like avoiding preaching on this, on this, in this passage. Okay, so let's get stuck in. So um, I'm just going to explain a few things before we, before we go. Okay, so Mark chapter 13 pretty much is Jesus telling his four closest disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, okay? Their world as they knew it, which would have been centered around Jerusalem and the temple, was going to fall apart. And then he tells them how they should live when all this happened. But he also tells them some good news in the passage. He also tells them that one day he will return again to the world, he will judge it, and he will gather all his people to himself. The end of the world, basically. So there's some good news in the chapter, but it's mostly predicting death and destruction, okay? So Jesus spends all of this chapter, chapter 13, telling his disciples about two separate events that are going to happen in the future. The first one is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which we know from church history happened in 70 AD, 40 years later. And the second is the second event is the second coming when Jesus would return and judge the world, which is going to happen sometime in the future. So in this chapter, he talks about two events. Now, have we got a picture here of like a mountain, something? Yeah. Okay. So I think this is kind of a helpful visual aid about showing the way Jesus talks about this. Okay. So he spends some time kind of talking about this event that's going to happen in the near future in 40 years. It's kind of like this hill just in the foreground. And then he spends some time in the chapter talking about this thing way in the distant future, kind of like the mountain in the background. It's just a helpful visual aid when it comes to this, this chapter. Now, the reason people often get confused by this chapter is because they mistake which of these two events Jesus is talking about. They think he's talking about the temple when he's actually talking about the second coming and vice versa. And people get really confused, okay? So I don't want that to happen to us this morning. So what I've done is, well, I tried to, but I couldn't. I tried to come up with a little table, like a little spreadsheet to excite Jamie, because Jamie loves spreadsheets. But I'm terrible in spreadsheets, so I ended up just writing it out, okay? So it's kind of a little table that kind of helps explain this chapter. Is the table up? Yeah, this is my table. It's not really a table, is it? It's just four lines. I was, I was trying to like make it interesting, and I couldn't do a table, so I just decided to color code it. But I, I just went green, white, green, white. I thought it'd be helpful. But anyway, so basically, this chapter is four bits. Okay, four bits to this chapter. The first 23 verses, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, Jesus is talking about this stuff in 30 AD, so it's 40 years later, okay? Verses 24 to 27, Jesus is talking about the second coming, when he comes way in the future back to judge the world. 
Then in verse 28 to 31, he goes back to talk about the destruction of the temple. And then in verse 32 to 37, he goes back to talking about the second coming, which I'm not going to cover this week. Rich is going to cover that next week. He's going to tell you the exact minute and second that the Lord is going to return. Okay, so make sure you don't miss that. All right. Um, hopefully it won't be between now and then. That would be, that would be weird. Anyway, yeah. So that's, that just helps us with this chapter. Okay, so a bit of background before we get stuck in. You thought you already had the background, but no, this is the background now. So in chapter 11 of Mark, we read that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt. We have palms, they're saying Hosanna, it's Palm Sunday, it's all happy, everyone's hunky-dory. And what he does when he gets into Jerusalem is he goes to the temple, has a walk around, has a look, then goes out, stays the night, and then comes back to the temple the next day. And then you've that famous passage where he turns all the tables over and he gets, you know, he kind of judges the temple. But just before he does that, there's this kind of interesting bit in chapter 11 where he kind of walks up to this fig tree that's in leaf and like curses it because it doesn't have any fruit. And then you're kind of thinking, what is that all about? Well, the reason he does that is because he uses the fig tree as a picture of the temple. He's saying the fig tree was fruitless, just like the temple. The fig tree should have been bearing fruit, um, and the temple should have been bearing fruit for God. It should have been a house of prayer for all the nations, but instead it was barren. It was just empty religion. And in the rest of chapter 11 and 12, Jesus walks around the temple courts, interacting with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and basically they all take turns hurling questions at him and trying to catch him out. So for all of chapter 11 and 12, Jesus is hanging around the temple. And then at the start of chapter 13, Jesus leaves the temple for the last time, never to return. He's never going to go back, okay? Never going to go back. And that's where we pick up the story. Mark chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Jesus was leaving the temple. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, this disciple was referring to the temple, which they just walked out of. I think we've got a picture of it. That's kind of a model of it. It doesn't really give you the scale of how big it is because there's, there's no little like miniature people in there just to kind of measure it against. But it was huge. It was absolutely huge. It was one of the most impressive buildings for hundreds of miles. People said that this was one of the most impressive buildings in the entire world at that time. Roman historian Tacitus says it was immensely opulent and no expense was spared. Now, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus gives us a little bit of maths about this building. He basically says that each stone in the temple wall was about 37 feet long 12 feet high and 18 feet wide. That's the size of a double-decker bus. One stone in the wall was that size. Okay, this is the kind of scale we're talking about. The temple complex was 35 acres in size. Now, this bit we're seeing is just the little middle bit of it. It's huge. So that's, what, 70 football pitches, I think, in size. The wall around it was a mile in circumference. And the wall, at some of its highest parts, was 165 feet high, which... Today's, today's world isn't hugely high, but then it was huge. There was, it was nine floors in certain places, the temple. It took 80 years to build. Um, at the point Jesus is talking about it here in about 30 AD, it, it, they'd been spending 50 years building it, and there, there was going to be another 30 years to go. Now, it wasn't just important architecturally, it, but it was a massively important part of the national identity of Israel. Sacrifices were made there. The priestly system was based there. It was where God resided in a special way amongst his people. And for, for Jews, it was their everything. 
They're absolute everything. And Jesus says, verse 2, you see all these buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. They're going to be smashed, destroyed. That's what Jesus says. Now, the disciples would have been shocked as Jesus told them this. Completely shocked. Now, we know from history that 40 years after Jesus said this, the Roman general Titus completely destroyed the temple, just like Jesus said he would. Now, the weird thing is the temple had actually only been completed six years, 80 years building the thing, six years completed, then completely destroyed. You'd be a bit gutted about that, wouldn't you? And he also destroyed the city, leaving no stone left on top of the other, completely raised it to the ground. Now, the disciples sitting there obviously had no idea that this was going to happen. So a little while later, verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, a mountain just next to, to this, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now, Jesus basically said, in that way that, that only Jesus can do. Now, Jesus, in the way that only Jesus can, can do, doesn't really answer their question. Instead, he tells them a bit more about what's going to happen and also gives them some advice about what to do when it does happen. He says this, verse 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive Many. Now, history tells us that this did happen in that period leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Many people did come and say, I'm Jesus. I'm the Messiah. I'm doing great things. I'm the, I've come. There was a, a guy we know 10 years after Jesus called Thutis. He came, said he was Jesus, said he was the Messiah, and, and people believed him. And Jesus says, don't believe these people who come and say they're me. He then goes on to say, verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. Now we know at this time in Colossae, 30 years after this was said, there was a massive earthquake there, destroyed most of the time. We know in Pompeii in 63 AD, there was a huge earthquake. There was wars. There was rumors of wars all at this time. Jesus is saying, look, when you hear of these things, don't think it's the end of the world. This is just normal. This is just normal stuff that happens in the world. Wars, earthquakes. It's not the end of the world. And then he's going to say, verse 9, but you must be on your guard, he says to his disciples. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Verse 11. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read the book of Acts you'll see that the disciples were flogged and they did stand before governors and kings and the Holy Spirit did give them words to say. Verse 12 continues. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And again, we see this is exactly what happened. Soon after Jesus' death, Christians became hated and persecuted. The Roman historian Tacitus says Christians were a class hated by everyone back then. And because of that, in 64 AD, there was a fire in the city of Rome. 
So this is 30 years after Jesus is saying this. The emperor Nero decided to blame the Christians. It had nothing to do with them, but he blamed them, and he had loads of them killed. And at this time, many people may have told the authorities about family members who were Christians, and they would have been killed as a result. And then we're told we're to stand firm. They were told to stand firm to the end. Now, this doesn't mean the end of the world, but stand firm to the end of this dark time. So for those of you hoping for a really happy, inspiring, like, vision Sunday, <laughs> you can see now, this really isn't the passage for it, is it? <laughs> this, is, um, this is Jesus predicting some pretty bad stuff that's going to happen. And I would like to say that um, now it's going to get really nice and hopeful and joyous and stuff, but it's not. It's going to get worse, okay? It's going to get worse. Verse 14. Now, if you ever get this in your quiet time notes, um, I feel sorry for you. Um, verse 14 says this. You just never will get this in quiet time notes. They're just, I think they're trying to avoid this verse. But verse 14 says this. When you see, Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, Oliver, I'm thinking... What on earth is that? I think, I love this line, the abomination that causes desolation. I feel I should, I should, you, should, you should say it in like a Darth Vader voice. You know, abomination that causes desolation. I don't know if that's a Darth Vader voice, but <laughs> I feel like you need to put a voice on. You know, so if any of you ever end up reading this passage, put a voice on for this. I think it makes it sound better. But what is an, the abomination that causes desolation, okay? Well, we don't know for sure, okay? but we have a few ideas, okay? Now, this phrase is used three times in the book of Daniel, and it's, and it's used to refer there to a pagan king who 200 years before Jesus went to the temple and sacrificed a pig, unclean animal, on the altar of the temple and then drank its blood, okay? That's what he did. And this abomination that causes desolation is used to describe what this guy did, okay? So it's, it's kind of this, what he did was kind of like the ultimate act of sacrilege, and Jesus seems to be saying here that a similar kind of sacrilegious event is going to happen again in the temple. Now, we think it may be referring to when Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, when he besieged Jerusalem, he just got there, surrounded the place, camped out. And what happened inside was horrific. The conditions that people lived in were horrific. They had no food. Um, they resorted to cannibalism. Um, some children died and their parents ate them. Like this happened in Jerusalem at 70 AD in this, in this um, siege. And then what also happened was terrible violence started to break out in the city. Like people in the city killing each other. And this was before the Romans even broke in. So conditions were absolutely awful, even before the Romans got in. When the Romans did eventually get in and take over uh, Jerusalem, General Titus went up to the temple and made offerings to the Roman god of Jupiter on the altar. And then after he'd finished that, he completely raised the temple and Jerusalem to the ground so that not one stone was left on top of the other. And what he also did was he crucified thousands of people as well. It was a time of unprecedented violence and destruction never seen for a long time, okay? That's what happened 40 years after Jesus said this. And this is why verse 15 says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, when you see that, you get out. 
When these Romans show up, you get out, you run as fast as you possibly can. It says, verse 15, let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Verse 20 continues. If the Lord had not cut short these days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. And then we're just going to skip on to verse 28. It says this, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Remember, the fig tree was this picture for the temple. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. And that generation hadn't passed away 40 years later when this happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay. Are we all okay? We've all survived that. Um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty tough stuff. And you know, when the disciples heard this, I mean, they must have been pretty scared. I mean, I would have been scared if I'd have heard this. And you know, they were, they were, here they were sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, sun shining, beautiful view, maybe had just had dinner, everything is hunky-dory. And then Jesus paints this bleak picture of the future. I mean, I wonder if they were thinking after he'd said all that, gosh, we should never asked. I mean, really? But everything Jesus predicted here, it all came true. It all happened exactly the way he said it would. History shows us not that. The disciples couldn't see this then, but history shows us that. And what Jesus was telling the disciples about here, it was not the end of the world, but it was the end of their world as they knew it. See, the disciples were Jews, so that the temple was the center of their world. It was the focal point of their national identity. It was it was where sacrifices were made for sins. It was where God dwelt in a special way. And Jesus says, you see all this? It's going to be smashed to pieces. It's going to be, there's going to be unparalleled pain and suffering. And you guys, you're going to go through some serious hardship and persecution yourselves. Jesus was telling them their, la- their world was going to fall apart. I don't know. I'd love to have know what the disciples said after that. I mean, how do you respond to that? Like, okay, Lord. Thanks for that. Um, would you like, you know, would you like some more food? Or, I mean, do you just, wow, what do you say to that? But that's what he told them. And I just, I was thinking about this today, this morning, you know, maybe, I mean, it's different, but maybe some of us here, you're, you can identify with the, the disciples a little bit. And perhaps you're thinking, look, I know it's different, but like, it feels like my world is falling apart too. You know, maybe like Kathleen, my old Sunday school teacher who I mentioned at the start, maybe your life feels like it's falling apart. Maybe due to illness or bereavement, or a combination of both. Or maybe it's due to problems at work, or family issues, I don't know. But I know we can often go through seasons of life when it just feels like everything is falling apart. I know I've had times like that. So just before we finish, I just want to share two things that I think can help us get through those times when life seems like it's just falling to bits, it's just falling apart. And the first thing I think that helps us 
is, is, is to be on our guard. To be on our guard. Now, on Friday there, I, um, I gave Max a breadstick. My son, Max. He's, what, almost three. I gave him a breadstick. Now, for Max, breadsticks is the holy grail, okay? It is what he loves more than anything in life, okay? Probably loves it more than life itself. When you give him a breadstick, he is just over the moon. Especially if you give him a full one. Don't break it. Loves it. Um, so I gave him a breadstick. And then what I did was, and I don't know if you've ever done this, I gave it to him. Then I tried to pretend to eat it. So I'd go into my mouth, ah, like that. And if you ever want to see a visual aid or like a visual illustration of being on your guard, what Max did next was just that, you know? Breadstick here, like, no, this is my breadstick, you know? It will be over my dead body you get this breadstick. That was, that was what he was like. And, um, and I think it's important for us that we need to be on our guard as Christians as well when, when tough times, when hard times come our way. In this passage, Jesus tells his disciples several times to be on their guard and to not be deceived. So what do we, what do we need to be on our guard against? That's the crucial question. Well, when we go through times of suffering, you know, it can be easy to begin to doubt God's love for us and his, and his goodness to us and his promises for us. It can be easy when we're suffering to start to think maybe God isn't really in control. Maybe he isn't really good, loving and caring after all. And we can, and we can start to think that maybe we're better off without it. You know, and we need to guard ourselves against those thoughts. Now, I just want to say, look, it's, it's okay to struggle with our faith sometimes. It's okay to have doubts. You know, we all do at some point in our lives. But, but what I think it means to be on our guard and to not be deceived is that we hold on tightly to the truths of the gospel. You know, we hold on tightly to it, just like Max holds on tightly to a breadstick. We hold on to those truths real tight. And, and sometimes that can be a bit of a battle and, and we might need help from others. But, but ultimately what the gospel is saying is that even when severe suffering hits, God is still good. He is still in control. He still loves you. He still died for you. He's still with you. And he will still come again and bring you to a place where there will be no more crying or suffering or pain. Do we do amens here? Amen. Amen. Yes. Yeah. That's an amen moment. Yeah. I I don't mind telling people to say amen at appropriate points. That's totally fine with me. But that's what we have in the gospel. And you know, back to that story that I started with, with Kathleen, my old Sunday school teacher. Um, I remember when we went to see her, and I wasn't quite sure what, like, how she'd be feeling, how she'd be doing. And, and we got there, and, um, and she chatted, and she said it was really difficult, especially seeing her two grandsons you know, go to sports day, you know, and they can't really do anything because they've only got one leg. And, um, and she just shared that and, and talked loads. But, you know, there was just something in her. Like, her faith was just so vibrant and sweet, and there just wasn't a hint of bitterness there at all. And then she said this, she said, the Lord knows why we've had to go through this and we trust him. One day we may know, but we keep trusting in him. And I just thought, oh, wow, that was so good. Like such an inspiration to be able to guard yourself and hold on to the truth, even, through, even when going through suffering. And um, Romans chapter 8, I just want to read this, reminds us that suffering is not a sign that God doesn't love us or care about us. A great passage. Elizabeth was, was, was saying, oh, you should really read this passage. So I'm going to read it. Romans 8, 35 to 39. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the way that God shows us he loves us is through Jesus. By dying for us, for, by forgiving us for our sins, by giving us eternal life. You, know, you want to know how God feels about you, you just look at the cross. And that's where you see what he was willing to go through for you. So let's not be deceived. Let's be on our guard and not believe the lies when we're experiencing suffering. The second thing I think that helps us when it feels like our life is falling apart, I'm going to finish with this, is looking at the big picture. Looking at the big picture. Now, when I moved to Manchester, what, 2008? So what's that, 12 years ago? A couple of people from my old church, they invited me, a couple of guys invited me to, uh, to go see Stockport County play, go see a football match. And I was really excited until I saw where they sat. Okay, so obviously I was going with them, so I was going to sit with them. They sat in the front row. I was like, who sits at the front row of a football match? I mean, who does it? You can't see anything. You, you can just see this melee of kind of players. You don't know where they are, who's got the ball, what's going on, except when something happens right in front of you. And you're like, oh, great. And then you spend the next 10 minutes guessing where the ball is and what's happening and goals are scored. And you can't even see them. It's the most awful place to watch football. So I went along with them for a few games. And then I was just like, look, lads, love you. I can't sit here, okay? So I just went back up into the stand, high up, halfway line. And I could, it was beautiful. I could just see the whole pitch laid out in front of me. Okay, it was the big picture. I got to see everything. I could see everything from a bird's eye view. I could almost tell what the players were thinking, what they were even going to do, because I could see, oh, yep, there's someone over there. It was, it was, it was fantastic. And it's kind of what we need to do sometimes as Christians. You know, so often, sometimes we can get so focused on this thing that's in front of us. And what we need to do is to, take, to step back and look at the big, big picture. Now, I am going to share a C.S. Lewis quote right now. This is my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. Um, I, uh, I haven't shared it for a long time at Lady Barnard Withington because Elizabeth banned me from sharing it. Because uh, I like it so much that I would share it pretty much every week. Every week I would end my sermon with this. And she was like, look, it's like the 10th time in a row. You can't do it anymore. But she said to me this week, she was like, Andy... You know we're at a new site? And I was like, yeah, good news for you. I was like, what? You can use your C.S. Lewis quote again. I was like, yes! Result. So, and actually it kind of fits. It does kind of fit, actually. I'm not just randomly inserting it in here. But yeah. So here's my C.S. Lewis quote. My favorite quote, which you'll probably hear every time I preach. Sorry, Jamie and Millie, it's coming back. You've heard it many times. Um, but yeah, here it is. C.S. Lewis says this. Great quote. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. What he's saying is it's all about big picture thinking, okay? It's all about big picture thinking. We get, what, 70, 80 years in this life and then eternity somewhere else? We've got to be thinking big picture thinking. It just changes the way we think. Verses 24 to 27, the bit I skipped out in the passage, the good bit, says this. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. 
At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And what will he do? Verse 27. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Jesus is going to return again. He is going to return again. Now, we don't know when this will happen until Rich preaches next week and he tells us. But we know that it will happen one day. Okay? It will happen one day. And you know, the first time Jesus came to this world, he came in very, very humble circumstances. But the second time won't be, though. The second time, the next time when he returns, he will come in all his glory and majesty and he will judge the world and he will gather his people to himself. So how do we, how do we live when our world is falling apart? Be on our guard. Hold on to the truth of the gospel. I know that's a real simple thing to say, but that's what we've got to do. And look at the big picture of what's coming, what our future is. Now, I'm going to finish with this. and Yeah, band will come up. And uh, Elizabeth just said to me, she said to me yesterday, she was like, Andy, because um, Elizabeth went to a brethren church. Now, brethren churches, you know, they, they talk about the end times and like, you know, the Lord returning all the time. So Elizabeth said, you know, when I was in youth group, Andy, you know, when you're in youth group at church, didn't, um, didn't you always like kind of think, oh, um, oh I, I hope the Lord doesn't return before I get my exams done, or I hope the Lord doesn't return before I get married, or I hope the Lord doesn't return. You'd think, oh, I hope the Lord doesn't return, but all these other things. She's just like, did you think that when you were in youth group? And I was like, no. Like, what kind of weird church did you go to? Anyway, but she says, oh, well, I, I did a little bit. And, and sometimes, you know, if you, when we think about this too much, we can kind of think a bit like that. But actually, when we've got big picture thinking, we're just like, you know what? Lord, come, whenever it is, we want you to come. Sort this whole thing out. Bring your people to yourself. We long for you to come. That's what we want to see.